So we're in Matthew chapter 26, and as you're turning there, let me begin. Queen Mary ascended the throne of England in 1553. In subsequent four years, she had at least 288 people put to death, often by burning them at the stake for their religious convictions. To history, she became known as Bloody Mary, although in truth, she killed far fewer people per year than her brutal father. It was the godliness of many of her victims that made her stand out, though. Mary's father, King Henry VIII, had separated the Church of England from the Roman Catholic Church, but he had not reformed the church practices or doctrines. And on Henry's death, his young son Edward became king. Many of Edward's advisors tried to move the English church in the direction of a more Bible-based Christianity. And two such men that were vital in this were Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer. The scholar Nicholas Ridley had been a chaplain to King Henry VIII and was Bishop of London under his son Edward. He was a preacher beloved of his congregation whose very life portrayed the truths of the Christian doctrines he taught. In his own household, he had daily Bible readings and encouraged scripture memory among his people. Hugh Latimer also became an influential preacher under King Edward's reign. He was an earnest student of the Bible, and as Bishop of Worcester, he encouraged the scriptures to be known by English, or excuse me, to be known in English by the people. His sermons emphasized that men should serve the Lord with a true heart and inward affection, not just with an outward show. Latimer's personal life also reinforced his preaching. He was renowned for his works, especially his visitation to the prisons. And when Mary became Queen of England, she worked to bring England back to the Roman Catholic Church. One of her first acts was to arrest Bishop Ridley, Bishop Latimer, and Archbishop Thomas Kramer. After serving time in the Tower of London, the three were taken to Oxford in September of 1555 to be examined by the Lord's Commissioner at Oxford's Divinity School. When Ridley was asked if he believed the Pope was heir to the authority of Peter as a foundation of the church, he replied that the church was not built on any man, but on the truth Peter confessed that Christ was the Son of God. Ridley said he could not honor the Pope in Rome since the papacy was seeking its own glory and not the glory of God. Neither Ridley nor Latimer could accept the Roman Catholic teaching on the Mass as the continual sacrifice of Christ. The articles they were debating were, one, whether the natural body of Christ is really the, in the sacrament after spoken by the priest, which is false. Jesus wasn't in the bread. Two, whether after the words of consecration, any other substance remains in the sacrament other than the body and blood of Christ. False. It was still bread and wine and never changed. Three, whether in the mass there was a propitiatory sacrifice for the sins of the living and the dead. False. The mass was only symbolic for our remembrance of Christ's sacrifice. There was no saving work done in the mass. It only declared a saving work. Latimer told the commissioners, Christ made one offering and sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, and that a perfect sacrifice neither needeth there to be nor can there be any other propitiatory sacrifice. His answers were sharp, witty, and knowledgeable. He was then asked whether or not he would dispute the articles, and he said that so long as God gave me life, he would not only have his heart but also his mouth and pen to defend the truth of the Scriptures. His opinions were deeply offensive to the Roman Catholic theologians, and they vowed to end him and Ridley. Now, why would I begin with a story of over 450 years ago? It's because we come to a section in Matthew's gospel this morning 
that is infamous because it's caused many divisions within the church and persecutions by the church. When we read church history, it paints a vivid picture of the importance of the Lord's Supper for the church. If you lived 450 years ago, you might die based upon your answers to these questions. What did Jesus mean by this is my body? And who should partake in the ordinance of communion? Today, those same questions are still asked, maybe not as frequent as before, but mostly we're safe to answer. We don't have any stakes outside to strap you up and to burn you. There's still disagreements on these matters without in churches today, but it's of importance. This morning, we begin a three-week series with four messages leading to the cross and the tomb. Three weeks from today, Lord willing, we will celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. But today, we look at the Lord's Supper in Matthew's Gospel. I believe it's good as Christians to consider and reflect on the Lord's death leading up to Good Friday and, and Easter. And so that's our plan. This morning, we will look at the Lord's Supper. Next week, we will look at Jesus' prayer in the garden in Matthew. And Friday, April 19th, we will have a Good Friday service to look at the cross. And three weeks from this morning, Lord willing, we will look at the empty tomb. So as you read your scriptures during the week and your daily time in the word, I would encourage you to include the passages in Matthew that are laid out for you in the sermon schedule so that you can be prepared as you come and hear God's word preached. So if you haven't turned already, turn to Matthew 26. If you're using a Bible provided for you, it's on page 781. We're gonna look at verses 17 through 30 this morning and follow with me as I read. Now on the first day of the unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into a city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house and with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the 12. And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The son of man goes, it is as written of him, but woe to, to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, is it I Rabbi? He said to him, you have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, drink, saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. I realize this morning, some of you might be hearing and listening and understanding the Lord's Supper for the very first time. Praise the Lord, we're glad you're here. And I pray that this will be a helpful sermon to you. Would you join me in prayer? I encourage you uh, to pray for me and I'll pray for you as we get started. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we can gather together and worship you and we ask God that you would open up your word and give understanding to your people that are seated here. May the Spirit be their teacher and their guide and open up glorious truth from your gospel. 
And we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. You should have received a bulletin and an outline when you came in. There's a simple outline this morning and three points that are there. And the first is the guilty man. Before we get to the passage this morning, we need to recognize the preparation that led to, the, to this Last Supper. And, and if you're in the scriptures there, Matthew 26, and verses 6 through 13, we can read of the anointing of Jesus by Mary. She loved her Lord and anoints him with costly perfume. And the disciples, namely Judas, was upset because of the cost. And, and in that passage, Jesus rebukes him because he knows that his time has come. And then in verses 14 through 16, we can read then of the preparation of Judas who is still concerned over money, and he goes to the leaders to betray Jesus. He would, he would set up the time and the signal so that he could capture Jesus. He was a hired man to take down the Lord. And next, we, we move into the passage this morning, the preparation for Passover, and it's Jesus' own preparation in verses 17. Now, the Jews ha had a calendar of feasts that they would celebrate. John MacArthur, in his commentary, has an extensive list of these feasts, and so I he writes for this, and so I've taken what he's written and condensed it because I feel like he shares it in a way that's really helpful. He says that the Feast of Pentecost, which was to celebrate God's provision in the harvest, was one they celebrated. Then the Feast of Tabernacles, which was celebrated their wanderings in the wilderness and how God provided for them. Then the Feast of the Day of Atonement, which celebrated the provision of God through a sacrifice that sprinkled blood on the altar in the Holy of the Holies to atone for the sins of the nation every year. And then the Feast of Dedication, or as they know it, Hanukkah, which celebrates the deliverance of Israel under the leadership of Judas Maccabees. And then the Feast of Trumpets, which is the New Year. But the greatest celebration in many ways is the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And both are mentioned here in verse 17. But here's what MacArthur says, and I believe it's helpful to understand. He says, first, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was an eight-day festival. The Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were combined. The Feast of Unleavened Bread lasted one week from the 15th of Nisan until the 21st, as prescribed by the Old Testament. That was a seven-day feast. The day before was the Passover. So the combination was an eight-day festival. In fact, they were connected in the minds of the people so much that the Feast of Unleavened Bread could be a term describing the whole eight days, or the Passover could be a term describing the whole eight days. And so the people would celebrate the Passover and then for seven straight days, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and go on. And what was the Passover? Do you remember? It was a celebration of the people remembering God's deliverance of his people from the bondage of Egypt. Do you remember the story in Exodus? With Moses going to Pharaoh and asking for God's people, but he wouldn't relent? And then God sends plagues on the Egyptians. Ten, and the last being the worst, the death of all the firstborn in every family in Egypt. And before the last plague, God instructs his people then to kill a spotless lamb and put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their home. And when the angel of death comes to slay the firstborn of Egypt, if he sees the blood on the door, he will pass over. That is Passover. And we'll, we'll get into that more here on the second point this morning. But it's a significant time for the Jews. This was planned. They, they knew about it. And, and they were ready to make plans to celebrate together. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread was also important. Unleavened bread is bread that doesn't rise because there's no yeast in it. And when the people came out of Egypt, God told them not to have leavened bread because leaven represented an influence. It caused the bread to rise so that they needed to remove all the leaven from their house during this time. And so God is saying to them, I don't want you to take something from your prior life in Egypt and apply it to your new life. 
You've been delivered from that, and I want you to start new. This is new life for them, and he gave them a symbol of the newness of life, the unleavened bread. It was a reminder of them being cut off from their former way of life, and this celebration had meaning and purpose. But Jesus is going to change things yet again in our passage, in verse 20. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the 12, verse 21, and as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, is it I, Lord? And he answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. They are there and the meal begins and Jesus has this bombshell of an announcement. And he shares. Remember when he says truly or truly, truly, really what John says, it's significant. We need to pay attention to what he's saying here. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. I know that Matthew says it once, but John says it twice, and I believe that's the emphasis that he's trying to get across. And it's a shocking thing. In those days, to eat a meal together meant you shared the closest of friendships. And here is Jesus with his closest friends, and he's saying to them, one of you is going to betray me. And this would seem unthinkable for a friend to do. And they're sorrowful, grieving because of his words. Do you notice? This is totally un-American. Americans would, would say, is it him? What do they do? Is it me? Exceedingly distressed with the accusation that, that one of them is about to turn on him. And they all ask. And no one, no one, as the, as the scriptures say, suspects Judas. He's very good. He's very good at hiding. I mean, the fact that they chose him to be treasure shows that they thought that this guy was full of integrity. They trusted him. And, and Jesus doesn't do anything to expose him yet. Instead, Jesus chooses for him to sit close to him, sitting on the left side of his table, which many Jewish scholars say was a great place of honor. Judas had a very personal relationship with Jesus. But Judas never knew Jesus. Isn't that a paradox? Judas Iscariot had the highest religious privileges at the time. He was a chosen apostle and a constant companion of Jesus Christ. He was an eyewitness to Jesus' miracles. He was there when the blind man received sight. He was there when 5,000 people were fed. He was there when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. He heard so many sermons and teachings. He saw what Abraham and Moses longed to see. He heard what David and Isaiah longed to hear and to be embraced by the Lord of glory. Friends, Judas had the best pastor in the world. And yet his heart was never changed. You may think you need a better pastor and your life will be better. And here's Judas with the son of God. And he's deader than a doornail spiritually. His heart never changed. With Judas' own eyes, he saw the clearest evidence. With his own ears, he heard the finest, most accurate teaching ever. With his own feet, he followed the greatest example. And yet this man still betrayed Jesus because he was unregenerate. It is very possible 
friend, for you to be a part of a church for your whole life, to sit under sermons for years, to serve people out of love, and yet never be converted. And you self-identify as a Christian, but you're not. Judas was a betrayer of the Son of God. And he was a betrayer by his own choice. He betrayed and rejected the grace. He rejected salvation that Jesus offered him. Then whatever Jesus is up to with the public announcement and denouncement, he's appealing to Judas's will and holding him responsible for the actions of his will, free under the sovereignty of God. Make no mistake, Jesus is fully sovereign and Judas was fully responsibility. There's a mystery there. There's not ambiguity. Another thing to notice here in the, in, in the passage earlier with Judas going to the leaders and then our passage we're reading this morning is, is Judas' betrayal of Jesus was motivated by something. You know, it doesn't explicitly say, but it's, it seems in the context of the chapter, at least my guess is, that money was his motivation. As Paul writes to 1 Timothy, chapter 6, verse 9, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The history of the church gives us so many examples of this truth. For money, Joseph was sold by his brothers. For money, Samson was betrayed to the Philistines. For money, Gehazi deceived Naaman and lied to Elisha. For money, Ananias and Sapphira tried to deceive Peter and lied to the Holy Spirit. For money, Jesus was delivered into the hands of wicked men. Friends, this is a warning to us. The love of money can tie a noose around your neck. We can give up all sorts of things for Christ. Judas surely did. He gave up his freedom to follow him. He gave up his home, his job, his pursuits. But as we see, he wouldn't give up his money. He wouldn't give up control over the finances. And this may be you here this morning. You may feel like you've given up so much to follow Christ, except for the money that you get every week or month. And you think, that's mine. I earned that. As Christians, we should freely give. And we give to others that are in need. We give to the Lord, to the ministry of the gospel. This is a mark of a healthy Christian. And the question, am I faithfully giving, cheerfully giving to the Lord's work in and through his church? And we give because we want to invest in things that last, laying up our treasures in heaven. We, we give because it brings spiritual blessing. It's, it's blessed to give than to receive. And some of the best teaching that my wife and I have received over the years have been through people in the church who have faithfully given. We especially see this as we served as missionaries on the humbling side of receiving funds. We got to, during a period of time, gloat about our home sending church, Edgewood Bible Church, that we received over half of our support. And I talked to missionaries and they're struggling to raise support. And I'd say, our church gave over half because you people gave. See, Judas was weighed down with this world and his hope couldn't reach any further than his pocketbook. 
And he saw his only hope was to build a lasting kingdom with riches and power on earth. And in so doing, he forfeited his own soul. And if you feel the same tension in your life, friends, the answer is to give. Do you want to battle the temptation to make this earth your home? Then intentionally give. We need to be known as Christians as giving people. We give it away. We, we do that, but that act of giving, it shows that we show no control over what we're holding on to. We give, but not just money. We give of our time. We give of our energy. We give of our personal space. Inviting people into our home when we're really uncomfortable with that. When we like to have just a comfortable home, we, we're willing to give up of that and invite people in. And, and I speak from God's work in my life. Giving always loosens the grip that we have on this world. It always does. Matthew continues here in verse 24. The Son of Man goes, it is written of him, but woe to the man who the Son of Man has betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. It is a hopeless situation for those that die unconverted. Jesus' words to Judas are particular solemn. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. This teaches plainly that it is better to never live at all than to live without faith and to die without grace. To die in the state of unbelief is to be ruined forever. Our preaching about the cross and hell are very important. And never believe the lie that it's not important. It does matter. And as Christians, we're to live and preach the gospel and to die and be forgotten so as long as Christ is remembered. That's the first point. Second is the last Passover, the second point. The meal begins, and although Matthew doesn't state it clearly, Judas has left into the night to begin his plan. It's a family meal, and Jesus is going to turn the focus away from from them to himself. And instead of focusing on the lamb, which isn't even mentioned here, although I believe it was eaten, he begins to talk about himself. You see, the lamb is not the focus on the table. No, it's Jesus. And he speaks of his body and his blood. Follow with me as I read in verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Where is the, where is the lamb, Jesus? Why isn't there any mention of the lamb, which was the focal point of the Passover meal? When God instructed Moses in Exodus 12 about the Passover meal, he especially focuses in, on, on people's need for a substitute to die in their place. In Exodus 12, 3, he instructs Moses to say, to tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of the month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. You see, a lamb was needed. A Passover lamb would die sacrificially so an Israelite family would be passed over in judgment. Not just any lamb, a perfect lamb, one without blemish, no defects. And the blood, the blood had significance too. According to Leviticus 17, 11, Blood symbolized two things, the life of the victim and the life of, for those whom it was uh, substituted. And so the Israelites were to take some of the slain lamb's blood and put it around the doorpost of their house. 
And the blood was a sign of salvation for the Israelites. But listen, that it was not just the Egyptians who were subject to God's wrath here in Exodus 12. They're not just the ones that deserve punishment. God doesn't say that the Israelites were exempt from judgment just because they were Israelites or because they lived a better life than the Egyptians. No, the Israelites were also under God's wrath. And so they needed to be covered. Everyone, everyone was under God's wrath against sin. And this right here in Matthew's gospel was to be the last Passover for all of Israel. There was never a need for Passover again because Jesus was going to be that lamb. Jesus is the one whom John the Baptist would call out the lamb of God. And John Revelation reported seeing in his heavenly revelation a lamb looking as if he had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. Those images reflect the Passover and fulfillment of Jesus. So did God intend the Passover lamb as a preview for Christ? Absolutely. Paul couldn't have said it any clearer in 1 Corinthians 5. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. You and I need deliverance from bondage to sin and from the fatal judgment of God. And that deliverance will come only through the blood of the firstborn lamb without blemish. Just as the Passover lamb was a substitute for sinners, so too is the lamb of God. You see, all this was done for Israel so that they and us would see and know that God's people would be saved by a substitute. That's what God is teaching his people in Exodus 12 about the Passover. You see it? All those Old Testament passages, they're, they're teaching the people of their need of a rescue. And the Israelites were just as subject to the wrath of God as the Egyptians. And the lamb became the substitute for them. And the covering of blood became the only way of their salvation. And the feast of unleavened bread by which the Israelites were to remember the results of the substitute. They were to memorize, to remember forever the deliverance that God is about to perform for them. And as we read the Exodus passage, as you study that in Exodus 12 or Passover story, what does it remind us of here? It brings our mind right back to the Last Supper. And really, the Last Supper is such a poor title. That's not an accurate title. It's the First Supper. It's no coincidence that Jesus' death happens during this time in their calendar. It's for a reason. Just as the Passover meal is there to bring a memory, so the Lord's Supper for us in remembering what Christ has done for us. And we, we come to believe in what he's promised that he will do for us. So that leads to the third point here, the new celebration. Verse 26, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink, all, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is the Lord's Supper. This is a communion service. You know, there's something about a meal that, that make, you, make you feel like you're at home, right? If you were to ask most Christians whether they ate a meal at church, they would probably say, yeah, we have potlucks. We share a lunch once in a while. But what about the Lord's Supper? I mean, it's not enough to fill your stomach, but you're still eating and drinking together. You're seated together. 
What does this meal say about Jesus and his people and the church? What does this meal have to do with belonging to Jesus? You know, as we briefly heard from Exodus 12, God established the Passover meal to represent something very important. And as we've seen in that passage, in, in this passage here this morning in Matthew, Jesus is sitting down with his disciples to eat and, and things change. This isn't the, the Passover any longer. Things are gonna be different. It, it used to be a hurried meal. Did you know that? But the participants ready to travel. Moses says in Exodus 12, you must be dressed for travel, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. You're to eat in a hurry. It's the Lord's Passover. But here Jesus, in this passage, reclines at the table. This meal is altogether different. And in its significance, this is a, a follow-through to a promise made long ago. What's the most serious promise you have made in your life? And, and how did you confirm it or attest that you would follow through that promise? Have you ever bought a home? What do they make you do when you buy your home? They hand you a pen and they warn you that your hand's gonna fall off. Why? Because you sit there and you sign paper after paper. And what is that for? It's a promise. I promise that I'm gonna pay for the phone, the home. And what happens if you don't pay for it? Well, that's another story. When you get married and you do it in front of two witnesses from the state of Washington and hopefully many more, but you commit to each other. When you promise, not just in that moment of, of current love, but you promise for future love. You were love that one for the future. And, and, and what is the, the, the sign of that promise in marriage? We exchange rings. That's a sign of that promise. And, and when Jesus makes good on his promise with his people, he also gives a sign. And he seals it with his own blood. In Luke's gospel, there's a nugget there that isn't mentioned here. And it says that Jesus longed for this meal. In Luke 22, 14, and when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Significant because in the, in the Passover, it, 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 was, it was a meal that was sh to be shared just with your family, but now this meal is different. He's celebrating with his disciples, and what he's saying is, I, I'm, I'm turning you as friends now to a family. And Jesus is saying, This family are those who receive the sacrifice. This is huge for us, friends. It is no small passing thing when we come together before the Lord's Supper on a monthly basis. It is not just a passing thing. This is a celebration meal together as a family. And if you're here visiting and you're a, a Christian, we welcome you into that meal. But this is Edgewood Bible Church covenant family enjoying remembering what Christ has done. And Jesus changes things. You know, in the Passover meal, Jesus takes the bread and after blessing, he broke it and gave his disciples and said, take eat, this is my body. 
And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus is remaking the Passover in order to tell his disciples how to understand the death that is about to die. Remember, they don't get it. They have to go back in their minds. They can go back in their memories to remember what Christ has done. And he's setting them up. He's teaching them right then. You have to remember what this is about. It's no accident. It's no mistake by Jesus. This isn't taking Jesus by surprise or happening against his will. This was planned long before. And the Passover meals that have been celebrated year after year were leading up to this very meal. It was all done on purpose. And Jesus states for them in no unclear terms, I am the lamb. I'm the one. I'm gonna give my body for you. I'm gonna shed my blood for you for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus' death will at long last bring God's promised new covenant to life. Luke says, this cup is the new covenant established by my blood. It is shed for you. Centuries before, God had promised to make a new covenant with his people in the book of Jeremiah. And in this new covenant, God would write his law in his people's hearts, transforming them from the inside out so that they would love what he loves and do what he commands. And that they would know him from the least to the greatest and he would forgive their sins fully and finally, remembering them no more. And all of this, Jesus is saying, is now going to happen through his death. God is going to seal his new covenant promise in Jesus' blood. Jesus takes the bread and he says, this is my body. And he takes the cup and he says, this is my blood. And how can he identify the elements of this meal with himself like this? He's, He's making the bread and the wine a sign of the new covenant. He is tying them to God's new covenant promise like we tie a ring to a wedding bell. When you see a wedding ring on someone's hand, you see that they have made a promise to someone else. It's significant. When I stare at mine, I remember the day that I stood there and promised to my wife. And the same is when we come together and partake of this meal. We remember the promise. Jesus isn't saying that the bread and wine transform into something that are not, no matter what the Catholic Church teaches. Instead, he's naming the sign and what it points to. And because Jesus makes the bread and wine a sign of God's new covenant promise, he commands his disciples to repeat this meal in remembrance of him. Just like the Passover was a memorial to be regularly repeated, Jesus turned this last supper with his disciples to a new memorial, a new meal that defines their identity and community of those that are saved by Jesus' death on the cross. And on the cross, God saved a people for himself through the blood of Jesus Christ. He freed them from sin and made them his own. And on the the night before that great act of deliverance, Jesus gave them a meal to celebrate this. This meal defines God's new people in Christ. They all celebrate it. And no one else should celebrate it unless they're in Christ. This is for believers only. By celebrating it here, we're retelling the story of salvation. This, This meal bringing together God's past act of deliverance into the present. It tells us, it reminds us that every Christian was once lost in sin and that our Lord Jesus is the God who saves, the God who redeems. My friends, if you're here this morning and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, 
God is calling you to trust in him, to believe that he was the lamb who had been sacrificed to pay your penalty, to bear your burden, to save you from God's judgment for your sins. That is the message this Lord's Supper has for us. The Passover story shows us that all deserve death. Only those that trusted in God were spared. The Lord God made us all in his image, and yet we all deserve to be judged, even as God judged the Egyptians. Indeed, we all deserve that judgment totally and forever because of our rebellion against him. But God, in his great love, caused our punishment to fall on Jesus Christ. The Son of God voluntarily laid down his life for us if we would just trust and repent of our sins. And Jesus Christ is the Passover lamb sacrificed for all who would be his people. The lamb without defect became our substitutionary sacrifice if we repent and believe. And so you can speak well of Jesus and you can admire his, his life and try to imitate him, but remember that you have nothing unless Jesus is your substitute. If Jesus only came to show you how to live, then we all fail. And we all fail eternally. We praise God this morning that Jesus came to be our substitute in our place. And if you're here this morning and you're not in Jesus Christ, Do you understand that because God is holy, because God is good, he must judge you in your sin? And I pray that God will show you your sins. To be convicted of your sins would be the best gift you could ever get this morning because that's the beginning of a new relationship. That's the best thing God could give you to have now a reconciled relationship with God. And friends who are here, who are walking this road, longing for home, years and years of walking with Christ, don't grow tired of remembering what Jesus did for you on the cross. Don't forget the goodness of God for you. I love Charles Spurgeon's exhortation to elderly saints to talk about the goodness. He writes, do not die, O ye grayheads, ye who passed your threescore years and ten. Do not pass away from this earth with all those pleasant memories of God's loving kindness to be buried with you in your coffin. But let your children and your children's children know what the everlasting God did for you. Oh, we don't want to forget what Christ has done for us on the cross in this communion table that we celebrate together as the family of God is a chance for us to remember. See, the Lord's Supper is significant. It's so important of a teaching, it's even worth giving your life over. You know, I opened with the story of Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. Do you know the story? They stood for the truth of the gospel. They stood for the Lord's Supper, and they died because of it. Don't miss it. The Lord's Supper is a gospel issue. 
They were willing to give their lives in defense of the truth of what scriptures taught. This is a remembrance of what Christ has done for us. We do, we do not attain salvation through it, but this, it's not a work. It's remembering what Christ has done for us. And the day of their death was October 16th, 1555. Vladimir stood at the stake in Oxford with Dr. Ridley, and fire was putting to the pile of wood. He raised then his eyes kindly towards the heaven and said, God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able. And his body was forcibly penetrated by fire, and the blood flowed abundantly from the heart as to verify his constant desire that his heart's blood might be shed in defense of the gospel. And he's being tied to the stake, Ridley prayed, O Heavenly Father, I give unto thee most heartily thanks that thou hast called me to be a professor of thee, even unto death. I beseech thee, Lord God, have mercy on this realm of England and deliver it from her enemies. Ridley's brother had brought some gunpowder for the men to place around their necks so that death could come more quickly. But Ridley still suffered greatly. With a loud voice, Ridley cried, into thy hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. But the wood was green and burned only Ridley's lower parts without touching his upper body. And he was heard repeatedly crying out, Lord, have mercy on me. I cannot burn. Let the fire come upon me. I cannot burn. One of the bystanders finally out of mercy brought the flames to the top of his head. It was said that they received the flame as if they were embracing it. Latimer died much more quickly as the flames quickly rose. And Latimer encouraged Ridley. Be of Good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never put put out. Praise God, that candle has never been burned out. And friends, our church here is a testament to that. I'm gonna pray and I'm gonna ask the men as they come to service this morning, this Lord's Supper. And we'll partake together as a family. Father, we thank you for the rich history of brothers and sisters in the Lord who are willing to give their lives in defense of the gospel. This is no small matter. And Father, if we're honest, we don't wish the same, but we're ready and willing if it's your will. Help us this morning to remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf as we partake together as brothers and sisters in the Lord, remembering that Christ came as that spotless lamb on our behalf to take away our sins. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.